Hello and welcome to Demoncasting's Dark Materials Episode 6, the one where we've got big news. I'm Chris. Yet again, you're laughing. It's because you always do it. You were just being silly and it makes me laugh before it's we go not on. not all true. I was being extremely serious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's our big news? Oh, you tell me. It was your birthday. How did that go? It was lovely. Thank you. I was like, what big news have we got? Season? And then I remembered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an idiot. Um, is it about where we're going? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think we should probably start by saying that today's episode's a little late because it was Sarah's birthday Sunday so she took the day off from podcasting which I think is fair enough yes next week's episode may be a bit strange yes because I mean this is you kind of also showing off a little bit at being a good boyfriend (laughs) (laughs) so you know good good job there but um yeah Chris surprised me for my birthday I can't even say because I'm so excited um we are going to Iceland which is like a, a kind of bucket list trip for me um I'd, I've always wanted to go partly because of the the northern lights obviously very relevant to this here podcast um I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much about seeing it because it's a bit hit and miss about whether you know we will actually be able to see them but uh yeah that's that's where we're going to be and that's where we're going next weekend so we might be watching uh the episode from a cabin a cabin yeah. in Iceland cabin in Arcanus, I believe it's called, possibly. Or at least a hotel in Reykjavik, one or the other. Yeah. And we may well be podcasting live from the Northern Lights immediately after watching the episode. From them? Are we going to be yeah, in them? Yeah, we're going to be in the Northern... Didn't I tell you? I've pulled a few <laughs> strings. We're going to be in the Northern Lights. You've hired Lee Scorsby's balloon. We're going to be the Northern Lights. Yeah. Yeah. I've also realised, I think that's the first time you've called me your boyfriend on the podcast. And I'd imagine there's a lot of people out there scratching their heads about the amount of time we've referred to you fancying girls. And indeed me fancying Mads Mikkelsen. I think we said in the very first episode, actually, that we were partners. So. Oh, did we? Yeah. I don't remember We that. have. We've said that. They know. Okay. They're aware. Fair enough. <laughs> we can use them too much. We're bisexual. Yes. <laughs> Just, just in case you didn't know. Yeah, I just wondered. That people might be going, but wait, are they not gays? <laughs> <laughs> so enough about us, probably. Enough about you. More about me. Yeah, and more about more about the demon cages. Oh, yes, mm. demon cages, episode six. Yeah, interesting name, interesting uh, title. It's another crucial one. Last week's covered the discovery of the severed child, and this week's covers Lyra's time at Bolvangar. So it's kind of another, you're enjoying the way I'm saying that more and more dramatically every time I say it. I think we've, that's just how we say it now, right? Bolvangar. Yeah. Um, so it's another kind of crux moment in the story, essentially, mm-hmm. in terms of drama and action. Yes. I was excited for this episode because I knew there'd probably be some quite interesting bits in it. Um, it's kind of one of my favourite bits in the book, I would say. Yeah. Are we ready? Two down again? I think we've kind of started. Oh, sorry. Uh, I thought we had. (laughs) Well, I'm in with the actual description of what's happening. So we've got Lyra and she's been led through kind of, it's like a couple of seconds after the end of the last episode, basically. Yeah, she's been carted through from sort of the processing area, I Mm -hmm. guess. Yeah, she's led through into the canteen, which um, 
is filled with other children. Now, I just want to want to say here, like, how many children do you think are at Bolvanger? Oh, I don't know. It, it didn't look like that many, to be honest, did it? Maybe 15, 20? I should have counted. Well, my issue was that I kept seeing, like, differing amounts of children, I felt. Like, at some points, it seemed like there were hardly any children, and then at other points, there were, like, loads of them. In the fire drill, there seemed to be quite a lot. But in the cafeteria, not so many. But then maybe they're just not all allowed lunch at the same time. Maybe they're spaced out. You know what? That is a very good point. Yeah. So I will I will give them the benefit of the doubt on it, that one. It keys in slightly to a point I'm going to make later oh, on. Okay. It's probably going to be a divisive one. But oh, no. just, just remember, we've talked about the amount of people in the background. <laughs> OK. Lyra sees Roger in the canteen. Mm-hmm. He looks a little bit more sad and kind Distant. of than he did previously. Yes. Um, and, and a pan goes over and has a little sneakily chat with his demon. Salsilia. Salsilia, um, so that the kids don't have to talk directly. The demons have a little chat with each other and then Pang comes back and fills Lyra in on what they've been talking about. Mm. And I think the saddest part of that is that Pan sort of tells Lyra that they've changed. Yeah, you can kind of see that he has. Yeah. So then... um, a doctor so there's two doctors that appear in this yeah because... i'm calling them scientists but they're probably doctors <laughs> so i've kind of referred to them as doctor one and doctor two because they don't seem to have names so no, no. so doctor one the lady doctor uh arrives and she calls out the name of a child everyone goes silent yeah we Bridget all know McGinn. yeah poor, poor Bridget McGinn. We, we know what's going to happen because of Lyra's encounter with Billy yeah. and she has to kind of just sit there and watch knowing what's going to happen yeah. obviously all the kids are freaked out they seem to know that something bad is happening yeah. Bridget knows because she sort of tries to use finishing her dinner as a reason mm. to not go she does and of course if we couldn't figure it all out the composer did a good job of letting us know it's going to be bad with with that tuba section though sort of <laughs> sounding really low uncomfortable infrasonic notes almost it's we're all feeling a bit on edge uh, they lead her out into this kind of corridor and you see that the doctor has a fox demon yeah. and she has a rabbit demon. So nice little bit of use of the demons uh, to kind of... Fox in the hair. Yeah. Yeah. So she's sort of led through these concrete corridors to a, a chamber and she's clearly frightened and doesn't want to go in. Um, we don't really see what happens to her. She just gets led in and they shut this metal door. But the nurse that's sort of accompanying mm. them stays outside and as we hear sort of machinery whirring and things and the lights fritzing in and out and stuff the nurse sort of glazes over and starts to look really disturbed and distant yeah and i couldn't work out within those kind of sounds like do you hear sort of screaming or something i feel like but it's really low and kind of blended into the noise a little bit i ended up watching this in the recording studio it was it's quite a like dissonant sound so it's Mm. possible that depending on what you listen on it would sound like a human scream and maybe they made it by manipulating a screen but yeah it sounds very sort of electric and and mechanical and not good yeah um and then the main scientist emerges from the door and has to kind of snap the nurse out of her reverie yeah it's just kind of like business as usual for the scientist but obviously the nurse doesn't really like what she knows is happening in there yes titles we then go to lyra being measured Mm, by the male scientist or dr two yes (laughs) he's also known um he seems a little bit kinder maybe yeah he throughout seems a bit less sure about what they're doing i mean still doesn't stop him from doing bad bad things but (laughs) 
nonetheless. It's just a bit more cowardly with it. Yes. Yeah, that's definitely it. I like the way they've made everything look in this, like when they're using the equipment on her, though it's obviously meant to be like state of the art, it still kind of looks a little bit old. Yeah. And a little bit rough around the edges. Yeah, and it sort of sounds and seems to work a bit like an x-ray machine, especially mm. the really old x-ray machines. Like they even used a bit when I was a really little kid, like they mm. made that kind of clunking noise every time they took a, a shot with them and stuff. Yeah. And Lyra's sort of quizzing why she's being measured, like she's already been measured when she was checked in. And yeah. this is different. Yeah. She kind of asks if they're looking for dust. And the scientist starts quizzing her about where she's heard that mm -hmm. and where she's from. And she kind of realises that it's dangerous to know about dust. So she sort of... She does a Lyra, really, and yeah, then kind of feigns ignorance. It's and like, it's like, oh, it's, you know, any. it's just the, I'm clean. It's, you I know. wash every day. You yeah. won't find any. It's like, oh, it's a different thing. It kind of works. And he's like, oh, it's... She's talking yeah. about silly dust, not the yeah. dust we care about. Mm -hmm. But she then continues to dig a little deeper and asks what happens sort of to the children. Do they die? Do you take their demons away? And he kind of gets a little bit shirty at this yeah. point and says, you know, that's ridiculous. He says it's not a child chop house, which I thought was a very odd turn of phrase. I mean, I'm surprised that she pushed hard enough to ask if they were cutting people's mm. demons off after she nearly gave the game away asking about dust. You'd think she'd be a bit more careful, but no, apparently no. not. Well, she is saved by the bell, quite literally, because the fire alarm goes off. Yeah, and the scientist says, oh God, can't they fix this? Implying that it's like very regular. Yeah. And off, off they trot. I think one of the nurses, when they get outside, mentions that every time they, or maybe it's one of the kids, whenever they take one of the children away, yes, the fire it's alarm one of the goes kids. Off. Yeah. Whenever someone goes missing, like afterwards, a fire alarm goes. So we kind of got to mm -hmm. understand from that that maybe it's got something to do with the machine. The, the uh, intercision machine. Yeah, or maybe that they're up to something. My thought was maybe they're up to something that they don't want the children to see, so they're like, we'll get them out of that area. Oh, yeah, maybe they're bringing the bodies through or something. Well, the mm. demon and the child. Yeah. It'd be odds with why the scientist says, why can't we fix this, I guess. But mm. I'd be interested to see your thoughts. Yeah. So then when they get outside, Lyra makes a beeline for Roger so they can have a little chat while they're all stood in yep. having their names called and checked for the fire drill. Yeah. She tells him that the gypsums have come in. She's quite excited about and positive about it, but Roger, less so. He's so just says they'll get slaughtered, basically. Yeah, he's he's a lot more pessimistic. Yeah. Obviously, what he's been through has That's it. changed his attitude. She's sort of saying she's going to have this escape plan and everything, mm -hmm. and he's sort of saying he don't want to stand out. Like, if you stick out, you won't last long. And Lara says, yeah, fair enough. And then throws a snowball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did want to say about that is uh, Roger's words seem to suggest that perhaps children have tried to escape before. Based on that, you'd assume he would have seen children who have stuck out mm -hmm. getting dragged away. The, you know, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. He'll have seen something to make mm. him think that way. Who knows? Maybe Billy was trying to escape and they intersized him, severed him mm. for it. Maybe that's how he got out. Maybe he'd found a way to escape and just still managed to do it after the intercision. Yeah. Um, either way, though, Lyra does start a snowball fight. Yeah, a um, bit of Lyra chaos. Yeah, takes a couple of attempts, but then Roger does join in and everyone kind of pitches in and starts having a bit of a fight and Roger and Lyra then try to find an exit. Um, I think they kind of figure that if Billy managed to escape, then there must be... A kind of an exit somewhere that they can find. Uh, instead, they find the cages where the demons are. Mm. But 
just before that, that, you know, they're waiting outside that, that fence and they wait for the woman to come out with the, the trolley. Yeah. She's coming out as though she's wheeled that demon in there. And I wonder whether that was what they didn't want the children to see. Because uh, she's obviously wheeling that demon, the little the girl's cage demon into the cage. Yeah, mm. yeah. Because effectively, Roger doesn't know that's where the demon cages no. are. He sort of says, well, we're not allowed in this area. So that probably means that's where the exit is. And then what they find is this locked cage door. They have to wait for the nurse to come out and then they sort of tailgate through, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And find the, find the demon cages. The demon mm -hmm. cages were sad. Especially Bridget's demon hitting its head against the... Yeah, just headbutting the cage wall mm -hmm. in distress. Just absentmindedly, just repeatedly headbutting the wall. It's kind of one of those... It's one of those classic images you see around kind of animal cruelty, like mm -hmm. when they're campaigning against things like dancing bears or, you know... Mm -hmm elephant cruelty of like just the animal in a tiny cage injuring itself out of frustration yeah um one thing that is worth noting they do look quite different to how they appear in the books yeah because in the books they're sort of almost semi-transparent like they're ghosts or yes. something aren't they whereas in this they're more showing physical signs of disturbance and yeah. distress I think the way these looked in terms of where they were kept for me looked better as well because I think they're meant to be like glass jars they're meant to be in glass-fronted tanks, effectively, in yeah. the book. Whereas I think in this, there's something about the way those cages look that is quite kind of cool. They look They look like the cages animals are kept in at vivisection clinics. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. They're not really, it's experiment. not sort of a cage so much as a box, a metal box with a tiny, yeah. tiny bit of um, light at the front through that little panel window. Yeah. And then Roger realises, as he's looking at the, you know, the different names, and he realises that ratter that is demon is missing and therefore he must, really be. must be dead yeah mm -hmm. and lyra basically says that she knows because she found him but she got him back to to his mum got him back to his family mm -hmm. i thought this was some good acting from roger mm. he's been quite consistently good really at, at portraying a range of different emotions like in this he genuinely seemed different to the roger that we'd seen before he did yeah he does kind of go bizarrely back to normal almost immediately after later on, but we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he sort of says, well, if these demons are still here and alive, then the kids must be somewhere. So they, mm -hmm. they kind of jet off to try and find the severed kids. Yeah. Again, not in the book. No. In the book, you never really see where the severed kids are. It's just implied they go to this other facility, which to be fair, the scientist, when Lyra is questioning him, says a similar thing. Yeah. And I think it's something we speculated on a lot, like where are they? It kind of makes sense that they're just kept in a different part of Bolvanger and obviously they wouldn't tell the kids that because mm -hmm. if the kids found them, it would give the game away. Yeah. It's funny how easily Roger and Lyra managed to find them though. Yeah, just around the corner. But it's in that area the kids aren't allowed Actually, to go. Yeah, I suppose it's maybe it leads off. from around from there. Um but what they do find when they they see the children is that they're all um, they're counting down the beats of the fire alarm. Is that what they're doing? Yeah, every time the fire alarm sounds like one, two, three, which explains why Billy was counting when they found oh. him. And it's a nice memetic to be like, okay, what happened to Billy was definitely Bolvanger. Yeah. And maybe these kids are in danger of going the way Billy went. You see. It draws a nice line. And I quite liked that. Good so, job you're paying attention. <laughs> you know, it's a sound-related thing, so obviously I was interested in yeah. it immediately. I hadn't picked up on that, but that's a really good point. Um, they also have all have shaved heads. It's very concentration camp. 
Yes. So they shave their head. They must shave their heads afterwards. Well, yeah, because when we saw uh, Bridget going in there, and it equally later on when we see someone else go in, you they don't have their heads shaven then. Well, maybe. Okay, so here's the thing: those kids are pretty vacant, right? Mm. Maybe they just can't look after themselves at all, like washing themselves and stuff, and they shave their heads because it's just easier to keep them clean when they can't mm. clean themselves. Yeah, which it's, is quite sad in its own. Yeah. Mm. But it is very evocative of the whole concentration yes. camp thing, that part, which is something we kind of thought it would happen based on some of the teaser moments we saw in previous episodes. Yeah, the imagery from the rest of the, you know, from the yeah. rest of Bolvanger. Yeah. Lyra's kind of reinvigorated by this mm. and tells Roger that he needs to pass the escape tunnel. Next time the alarm rings, it's me. Yeah. Be ready to go. Be ready to fight, she says, which yeah. I'm like, that's... Ooh, possibly not a good idea when you're all children. Yeah, and you're fighting sure. armed guards with wolves. But <laughs> I mean, it's they're gonna they're gonna be screwed anyway, right? They're fucked if they stay there. Better mm. die on your feet than live on your knees. Strong words, indeed. Yeah. Uh, and then the the alarm has stopped anyway. So Billy's like, no, we we got to get back. Fire drills over. Yeah, and then we get a bit of a shot, just a real quick one of uh, what looks like Kaiser heading towards Bolvanger. Yeah. Yeah, just to sort give of, you that little nod that they are on their way. Right. And also that Seraphine is aware of what's going on. Yes. Mm-hmm. As, as promised, Seraphine is not too far away. Mm-hmm. So then, cut to the doctor's office, or the scientist's yeah. office. Having a drink. Yeah, they seem like they're both a bit worn out. Well, particularly, is it scientist two you're calling? No, doctor two you're calling male scientist. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, even more name difficulty is going to yeah. ensue, but not for too long. Uh, he's he's kind of just drinking to calm his nerves. And when Dr. One, the female scientist, enters the room, she sort of takes a glass and raises a toast to their work, which will soon be completed, they mm. hope. She says um, a, a toast to freedom yeah. and the conclusion of work. Does she mean freedom in the sense of, like, they will be free to leave Bolvanger? Possibly. Or does she mean freedom as in, they're going to talk about a little bit later, like freedom from sin? Yeah, freedom from the evil that we're trying yeah. to save people from. So, Hard to know. Not 100% clear. Because we don't really know how they've ended up there, whether they volunteered or whether they were kind of... Coerced. Um, yeah. I mean, she seems to be a driving force behind it. He's much more kind of reluctantly involved. Yeah, because um, he does say later, like, I just did what I was told, yeah. which implies that maybe going there and doing that work wasn't his kind of wouldn't have been his first, first choice, choice. <laughs> maybe when he arrived and realized what the work was it stopped being his first choice i yeah. don't know we're, we've no idea how they were recruited maybe we need a scientist backstory <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little history on bolvangar yeah. so they also mention that mrs coulter is rumored to be visiting soon or they say yeah. she well, so they think. say she i think for a reader of the books it's clear they mean mrs coulter for a non-reader it probably is too but even if it's not it becomes a bit of a nice reveal when it is her yeah. i guess they've got some new intercision equipment that they want to show off yeah they're, they're very... going to focus on their advances because <laughs> they're yeah. quite worried that <laughs> if they don't focus on their advances things might not go their way yeah they seem intimidated by her they seem to kind of fear her and want to impress her in some way so they've clearly been bollocked by her previously or found themselves in some difficulties so yeah that seems to be important to them yeah and it's at that point that the male doctor, Doctor Two, questions what it is they're actually kind of doing. Yeah, questions a lot of the ethics of their work, mm-hmm. the death of the children and things like that. And that's when the woman says that if they get it right, they'll free generations from the tyranny of sin. 
I wrote that bit down yeah. too because it was quite, oof, yeah, quite intense. They must succeed. And it's the kind of, it's the needs of the many thing that we talked about in the mm. book podcast when we were talking about like, why would people be doing this? Why would mm. the people that work at Bolvangar be doing this? And I sort of said, you know, if you kill five children to save a hundred and you said, oh, that's dark. And it seems like that's exactly the direction they've gone down in justifying it here. Yeah. And they actually used the um, the few for the good of the many mm, sort of, of line later says on. It later, yeah. doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. It does seem that they have kind of different approach, the two doctors. Yeah. The first one being a lot more committed to the idea of freeing people from sin, that this is going to be very important and that it's, you know, it's going to be groundbreaking. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of confusing because in this world, I think we get a sense of this more than we have previously, that what they call kind of theological or philosophical is science. their science. Yeah, theological science. Um, it's a bit confusing for us because I suppose we're not really used to scientists being super into religion and stuff that we see representations of anyway. It's usually quite the opposite. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's a bit unusual. Well, in a, in a minor science watch, most of the important early scientists were deeply religious. Yeah. I believe in, in Isaac Newton's work on kind of planetary motion, when he just, you know, as you do, invented calculus to figure out why the planets moved the way they did. Um, he reached a sort of point where he couldn't explain why the planets weren't always in the position that his models predicted they should be in. And he couldn't figure out the answer. So he he wrote something along the lines of, and here surely we must see the hand of the creator at work. And that was it. Like that was his explanation for why it didn't always quite match. And it and it took hundreds of years before Einstein came along and went, Well, it's relativity. That's why they're where they should be. It's just, you know, it takes time for light to get to us, mate. Yeah. I think that from what I remember studying philosophy as well, that was the oldie philosophers did that a lot of like, they'd, they'd kind of reason things out to a certain point and then would go, and eh, that must be and because God. of God. Yeah. <laughs> if they, they got, got stuck. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the logical fallacy, the God of the gaps was born. Mm. It's just kind of, you you say, oh, that's God. And later on, it turns out that you, know, you just didn't understand what was going on there. Mm. So it's kind of, it's unprecedented in the modern world, I guess, but it's not in our history. Mm. In any case, the scene with the scientists concludes and we jump over to Will's Oxford. Not quite. No? We have Lyra lying in bed awake first. She's listening to a child, um, one of the other girls in the room with her kind of sobbing and she looks kind of quite distressed. And then it does this thing where it sort of pans round the room and then all of a sudden we're in the laundry room. Quite nicely done. I thought you'd have picked up on that because that was a nice bit of... Um... Head, head down writing notes. Oh, yeah. Pause key doesn't exist when I'm writing notes. <laughs> <laughs> in Will's room, he's watching a TV interview with his dad, it turns out, on YouTube, I guess it's supposed to be, mm. maybe, or something like that. He's being interviewed about an expedition he's about to go on and he's talking about helping scientists drill ice and stuff. And the caption on the video is actually Ice Core Challenge 2006. Ooh. So is this like a kind of blue Peter thing if you drill enough ice cores you'll you'll get to go on blue peter and or you'll get a blue peter badge maybe even one of those gold blue peter badges a real they special were, one they were the real good ones yeah blue peter was like a kids magazine tv show that was so popular in britain for decades and then everyone realized at the same time that it was a twee load of crap and it got axed there was a funny thing is they would reward people sometimes people who'd achieved really great things with a badge with a logo of the show on it 
but they're like beloved of Britain. But you had different yeah. colour ones. So you had the normal, the white one with the blue ship was just like your, your general, like if you won a, like a drawing competition or you did certain things, you could write in sometimes. Yeah. If you'd done something good enough, you'd yeah. get one. And, and also you got entry to free like children's museums or just museums in general, I think. There were certain museums that worked with the show, yeah. Um, mm. Museums, art galleries and stuff. And if you had a Blue Peter badge, you got in for free or heavily discounted. So, I mean, this was a big show. This was an yeah. influential piece of British culture. Well, if you had a green a green ship on a white background that was if you'd done something like environmental or eco-y yeah. those were a bit more rare and then the rarest of all these the were saved gold. for like olympians and because you know olympic medal is not enough what yeah. you want is a tiny gold ship i mean it used to it used to make me laugh when every now and then they'd give a child a gold ship and yeah. it'd be like this is eight-year-old sophie who was the first seven-year-old to climb Mount Everest. She climbed it three times, raising £850,000 for Cancer Research UK. Well done, Sophie. Here's a badge with a ship on it. And that's not a real scenario, but like it's the kind of thing yeah. that they, they would grace you with the honour of a, mm. a, a small badge with a golden ship on it when you'd probably achieve something that hardly anybody would ever yeah, do. Yeah, but I still, I bet Sophie still would have loved that. I bet people treasured their Blue Peter badges. I bet they did. There's probably angry readers right now going, oh, dear Chris, I have a Blue Peter badge, which I earned by curing typhoid or something. And, and that was that made it all worth it. But, you know, me, being a bit of a rowdy yob yeah. of a child, never really liked Blue Peter. It was all a bit too structured and wholesome for me. Yeah. I, I wanted... I wanted Johnny Rotten with the Sex Pistols to start a children's TV show before I'd be interested in it. Yeah, Little Rebel. I'm rolling my eyes at you. I was definitely a Blue Peter kid. I'm still good that I never got a Blue Peter badge. Oh, it's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So Will's watching this. Yeah, John he... Parry's being interviewed. He talks quite lovingly about his family. He mentions taking a little toy truck of Will's with him. He talks about his wife Elaine and writing her these like, kind of epic love letters, which obviously are the letters that we've kind of seen. Yeah. And, yeah, it all seems quite good. And I'm sure everyone's quite excited at this point as well because people have been dead excited to see John Parry. And the actor, Andrew Scott, I know a lot of people were dead keen to see him because he's been in Sherlock. He was Moriarty in that. And he was the hot priest in Fleabag as well. Uh, uh, so I'm sure everyone was a bit like, woo, there he is in the flesh. Andy Scott. Yeah. We've been waiting for you. <laughs> and there All he was. Um, this is what the edge of your seat was made for. <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem like Will is kind of having a sort of moment of like... Remembrance. Right. Yeah. Probably I mean, because he was reminded of his dad and his dad going missing and so on yeah. by the mum in the letters. And then he goes to her room and sort of tucks her in and puts the light mm -hmm. off. And as, as is the standard for the show now, we always see Will to remind us that we're in Will's world. He's the signal that we're in his world. Mm -hmm. So even though we didn't necessarily always need to see Will, we see him before it cuts to the car outside his house where Boreal's contacts, I think it's the hacker and the pale face. Well, I'm calling them hacker and moustache man. Okay. Because his moustache is ridiculous. Yeah. It's very noticeable. And I feel like if you were like sort of trying to be kind of inconspicuous, you would not have such... A noticeable moustache. Yeah, I think that's done purely for televisual purposes because we don't really see Boreal's contacts that often and they're very much side players to Boreal. What you got is two generic white dudes, so you need mm. something to differentiate them to help the audience know which one Boreal's talking to. So I suspect that's done as a visual cue to differentiate between the two guys. Yeah. 
And also because it looks sort of weird and conspicuous, it kind of makes the character seem weird and conspicuous. Mm, true. So they are sat in the car and they are watching uh, the parries. Yeah, and the uh, hacker asks Mr. Mustache why they aren't going in yet. And he just sort of says, well, she knows we're watching and that's good enough for now. We'll, we'll get around to it sort of thing. And mm. it's like, oh, they're intentionally trying to intimidate her and make her feel watched. They're being very sinister. Yeah, and I think it makes it more sinister um, because of the things we were talking about last week in that she already has um, kind of paranoia or delusions mm. related to people being watched or... Um, yeah, and let, let's not thing. forget that when we first met the hacker and he mentioned the parries, he told Boreal that she was mentally ill. Mm. So maybe they're intentionally trying to make her appear like she's having some sort of psychotic episode. Yeah. So that they can maybe get her out of the picture and get to Will or something like that. Mm. And they're, they're clearly up to something and they know what it is, but we don't yet. So a no. little bit of mystery building there. Yeah. End of that. Olvengar. An airship arrives. The girls are most agitated because they see the golden monkey, so they know it's Coulter's airship. Yeah. Lyra looks petrified. Yeah. And the girls sort of immediately busy themselves tidying the dorm. They clearly mm. kind of want to make everything look nice and orderly and yeah. They want to throw the boys under the bus because they're like, yeah. we're, they are not taking one of the girls from this dorm. So they're just like, yeah, they can... If we're really good, mm. it won't happen to us. They have a very childlike understanding of why they're being picked out, maybe. Yeah. That's kind of sad. The thought that they think maybe they can stop it from happening by doing as they're told. It's quite sinister. Yeah. especially if that idea has been cultivated. Mm. You know, if you be really obedient, we won't hurt you. I think what made me kind of sad was the idea that you could get so desperate that you would kind of pit yourself against other children Yeah, because they're, they're close because that's the group they've sort of been put in. So you would kind of automatically, the human response to that is you become a group and you just protect the people in that group. Yeah, it's a very social animal mentality. We look after mm. our group primarily. Yeah. And then we see Coulter walking in with the scientists crossing the compound and they're discussing intercision and the scientists are trying to impress upon her the advances they've made, just like they discussed. Well, we'll try and focus on the good that we've done yeah. sort of thing. Uh, they do say that the children can now be conscious during the process and they remain conscious afterwards. And Coulter asks if they're responsive and they say, well, they're getting more responsive. So it implies a lot about how long this has been going on and that actually, even mm. though the kids are a mess at the minute, it's probably better than states they've been in afterwards in the past. Yeah, and they do actually say that the survival rate has improved with yeah. new equipment. So we can gather from that that previously the survival rate was not good at all. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering that for later on because stuff happens later that gives me a little confusion around this. Mm. And I think that actually it's a similar theme of confusion to what we had in the book. So. I think this is more a, a thing where they've not dealt with it any better than the book did necessarily. Okay. Uh, but yeah, remember that. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Coulter, as a result of them kind of selling how good the new process is, she's like, well, show me them. Oh, yeah. I'd like to see an incision. I want to see a demo. Yeah, and which is kind of disturbing to that easily be like, yeah, show me this kind of quite traumatic and damaging thing. Yeah, but we already know that Coulter's kind of a bad egg. Yeah, but that's a that's real bad egg territory. I know, but she kind of must be. I mean, she's running the show there, right? Yeah. She's the head of the gobblers. Mm -hmm. And that's the gobblers' purpose is to run Bolvanga. Like she's mm. she's chief of the death camp. She's the executioner that enjoys their work. She's sinister number one with a bullet. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, she would want to see it. I think it adds an extra layer to her of the kind of the... the sociopathic dis- monster that she is. I don't think she is sociopathic. Really? Do you think you could do those things and not be? But she clearly does have emotions. She just, And I think those are, the way we're meant to look at them is that they are real. But it's like when serial killers form an odd attachment. Like they'll, 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 they'll go around murdering people and eating them and stuff, but they'll have like a kitten that they just adore and dote on and do everything for and woe betide anyone that harms their kitten. But they could literally like destroy their way through the population of a tiny town if they were left to their own devices. <laughs> I mean, this is, it's fantasy. It's fiction. She doesn't actually have to fit a real-world mould, I guess. She's just a fantasy archetype. But I can't help but try and draw parallels between her and real people because, I mean, people like her have existed. It's like we talked about in the book podcast. Leaders of concentration camps, you know, had families and Mm, people that they protected. But fuck me, could you say that the leader of a concentration camp wasn't? I think it's more that some people are incredibly good at compartmentalising. But that's that's some sort of next level personality disorder. Well, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, but I, I don't know whether sociopathy is the. Well, maybe not, but I don't know. I don't can't think of another one. <laughs> yeah, any psychologists, yeah. psychiatrists, psychiatrists, write to us. What's worse than a sociopath? Well, no, I think it's just because it's one of those things where anyone who's evil gets called a sociopath. But not, I don't think, or does evil things rather. I don't think that that's always the case. There's a lot of different personality disorders lots of different yeah, things that could make people act the way that they do I, I suppose that's the problem the only ones i know of are you're basically either a raving murderer or raving murderer. Yeah, is that an official term yeah, yeah yeah you're a raving murderer or you've got one of the other personality disorders <laughs> where you're not a raving murderer basically probably <laughs> is a bit more nuanced than that okay we then go back to the dormitory uh lyra desperate at this point is telling the girls that she'll lead them to freedom she tells them that the egyptians are coming to rescue them um, but they've got to hide her from Coulter because yeah. Coulter's her mum yeah I mean she doesn't reveal that straight away though the girl initially is quite interesting I think it's Annie mm. um is quite interesting a bit like Roger really they're like oh yeah you're gonna save us oh yeah yeah we'll see it we'll believe yeah. it when we see it but then she reveals that Mrs Coulter is her mother I'm not sure why that makes the girls trust her because if someone told me they were the child of the, the baddie, I'd be like, I'm not sure about I this. I mean, I guess it explains why she knows exactly what they're up to there and what Coulter's really up to. But also, they don't half believe it quickly. They're like, yeah, it seems legit. Cool. Like, not, well, why are you in here then? Or, mm. or if she's your mum, what, what's going on with you two? Why can't you be seen by her? Why can't you just say, mum, rescue me? Like, I guess Lyra doesn't have time to explain all of that. And part of that is the way they've paced the episode. Mm. It's like she's not really had time to build up a rapport with the other children to even just establish that she might be able to escape. Mm. So she just drops this massive bombshell, I can escape because Colt is my mum. It's not exactly what she says, but you know. Yeah. And then it's just kind of like, yeah, cool. Get under the bed. We'll let you know when you need to pull yourself off the floor so she doesn't see you. Yeah. It's important also that she does tell the girls about indecision. She yeah. tells them what. There is a little bit of dodgy child acting in this part. Not by Daphne Keane, I don't think. You're by... implying that Annie is a bit substandard. She's, she's, a little, she's a little rough around the edges with the reactions and stuff. Yeah. But then she has been given some lines that are a bit more like... Stilted. So <laughs> that's not... I didn't feel like that worked particularly well Hmm. 
But um, but it's one of those passing moments that kind of doesn't matter too much. Yeah, it's bookended with very dramatic moments, and you're probably kind of just meant to accept it. Yeah. And I sort of did just accept it at first on the first watching, so that kind of worked. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Lyra hides under the bed. They tell her to sort of hold herself up. Um, Mrs. Coulter comes in for the inspection. She gives a bit of a, oh, you're a very good girl. Yeah. Thing. The golden monkey's looking around and yeah. you're like. He gets really close to where Lyra is and I'm not sure if he would have been able to see her and it got me to thinking like, is he meant to have seen her and just not done anything or is he meant to have not seen her? Because mm. I kind of, I like to believe that he saw her and he thought, I'm not going to say anything because cult is a wrong one. I think if he saw something, I don't think... I don't think he could hide it from her. No. Well, well, this is the thing. We know in the books he wouldn't because what the demon knows, the person knows. But in the TV adaptation, we've not really had that established. Mm. We don't know if that's the case. Yeah. So it's hard to know. But I guess you're right. Like by the, the established law, that, that couldn't be possible. But mm. we don't know if it is in the TV series. But part of me just wants to believe suddenly that the golden monkey's good and somehow separate from <laughs> Coulter. They're the same person, which is what I makes know. me think not a sociopath because there is still a part of her but there is that is... concept that like somewhere deep inside psychopathic murderers and stuff there's like a kind of a part of them that's become lost and detached you know there's the whole thing mm. of some of them like dennis nilson that are really relieved when they're caught and it's mm. kind of like are they relieved because they didn't want to kill but couldn't stop it mm. blah de blah but you get into real like <laughs> philosophical rather than scientific territory when you go down that route but still yeah. i don't know mm. so they get away with it the inspection happens there's a little trick moment at the end where she comes back and, and says like good job girls a bit like on yeah edge. lyra suddenly has to yank herself back up again into the bed because cool yeah. re-emerged and then but they did it they pulled it off they hid lyra mm-hmm. um what we get then is some lovely mountain shots yeah the egyptian party are making their way through a pass and and they mm. sort of try and cross a crevasse with a pair of rickety looking planks i'm not mm. sure that's the best way to do it and it nearly fails yeah but it, it lets us know they're on their way yes but it's taking them a minute because it's perilous yes because they're using dodgy planks we cut back to bolvangar and lyra is telling the girls about her plan to sound the fire alarm to signal the escape mm-hmm. when suddenly dr one <laughs> female scientist enters and, and calls lyra out come with me well, technically she calls Lizzie Brooks out. Well, yeah, it's true. I keep forgetting that she's doing the Lizzie Brooks thing. Yeah. But yes. Mm. And Lyra's led into the same chamber that we saw Bridget led into earlier on. And mm. she tries to run. And Dr. Two, scientist, male mm. scientist, makes a sort of diving grab for the demon. And instantly he grabs Pan and it causes Lyra to collapse. Yeah. Leading up to that, just from a sound point of view, I thought it was... It's interesting that I've picked this up. Yeah. <laughs> From the moment she's being kind of led through, the dominant sound is her breathing. breathing. And I thought that was quite nice. Yeah. Um, it's quite a thing that gets used fairly often, but it, it was good, I yeah. thought, to show that she is scared, you know. Yeah, you use things like an, a kind of exaggerated heartbeat sound effect mm. or that kind of emphasised, almost a rhythmic falter in breathing to instantly put your audience on edge along with your mm. characters. So it's a, it's a nice little piece of sound design there. Yeah. But yeah, the, the bit when he grabs Pam and she collapses, this is the first bit where I thought, like, 
again, are we dealing with something here where a, a non-book reader might wonder why that has happened? Because the only mm. time we've seen a human touch another demon was when Boreal killed the journalist. And then he just sort of, it landed in his hand. She looked very sort of scared and a bit frozen and he crushed it. And it was a bit like, well, she could have looked quite frozen and strange because she was afraid of what he was about to do. Mm-hmm. Or because you're not supposed to touch other people's demons because it elicits a really strong physical reaction. But we don't have that establishment in the TV series. No, because that's established more through Lyra's thoughts about things. Yeah, and discussions of the taboo and, and discussions of how Pan won't comfort Tony Macarios because if he does he'll touch him and break the taboo and things like that and we've kind of mm. we've lost the establishment again of the exact nature of the relationship between humans and demons and I think maybe what they're trying to do is build it up slower throughout the show so it's being fed through scenes where it's already been established in the book but I'm, I think the trade-off with building it up slowly is that you lose the immediate understanding of the impact of certain events like this. Mm. Why does Lyra collapse? Okay, we know now that grabbing a demon can cause a problem, but Mm. but did we need to know it sooner? I don't know. It depends where they're going with the rest of the retelling. I suppose it depends how important you think that reaction is. I mean, I suppose that knowing why it happens explains why it happens. So you're not confused, oh, why did she collapse? Is he crushing Pan? Is he strangling Pan? Is this just a thing? Mm. It's not necessarily critical information. And at this point, we're getting to a stage where maybe the bond between human and demon is it's about to start to become less critical for the story in a way, I think, because mm. we're about to pass the key scenes where knowing about that bond is relevant. Yeah. Um, but it's it's an odd thing. I, and I wonder if it's just a case of to pace the TV show, they had to deprioritize some information. And that was one thing they maybe thought, well, we can deprioritize that and people will find it out as we go along so we won't kind of yeah. expose them to it early on well, people will realize maybe from watching they'll kind of get the idea from the other things with you know they'll be able to figure it out for themselves at that point yeah and that's that's what i mean so by this point the audience is starting to figure it out but did they need to know before mm. um doctor two does seem kind of reluctant at this point yeah, he sort of says, just, just doing my duty, is it? Yeah. Just doing what needs to be done. Yeah, he's not he's not super happy about it. Lyra and Pan are both carried into the chamber. Doctor Two just kind of just launch Pan into the cage as well, which is yeah. quite horrible. I think that's kind of one of the things about the, the demons being animals is that you have those warm, squishy, fluffy feelings that you do for animals. It's like watching animal abuse, isn't it? Yeah, so there's that kind of element to it as well. Um, Lyra is kind of forced into the machine. She tries to kind of escape, but yeah. they manage to, to get her back in. It's a bit of a struggle. Yeah, and the, the scientist, Doctor Two, as he's sort of pushing her in, he says, you know, calm down. It just feels like a loss. Oof. Yeah, just feels like a loss. I was like, oh, great. Yeah, let me sign up for that. And they, and they push her in. And, and as they're sort of pushing her in, there's a bit of kerfuffle going on. And one of the scientists drops a little miniature exposition and says, don't forget to shut the door. You don't want to fritz out the um, barrow-magnetic field. First time magnetism's been mentioned in the TV series, I think, but it doesn't get mentioned at all in the books. Mm. And I think that's important because it was a big feature of my science watches in the book podcast, it but is. ultimately it actually doesn't matter that much. I get what you mean, though. It's just like it is a feature of the books because it's the feature of the world that Philip Pullman has very 
carefully created, but it's not the end of the world that, no. that they've broken that. And they've changed certain things as well, like Will's Oxford obviously is in much more modern times than it mm-hmm. was in the book, simply because of when the show is being made. And I, yeah, it is a me thing, it's petty, but still, I can be petty if I want. <laughs> but then they, yeah, they slam the door shut and... Uh, Lyra's screaming at this point. She's really distressed. Some good acting from Daphne Keane. She's screaming like, do you know who I am? This is Coulter Mm -hmm. won't allow this. And eventually she shouts that Coulter's her mother. And as they're powering the machine up, she just starts shouting mother. And I think that does a really good job of showing her desperation Mm -hmm. to get out. Because even though she knows her mum is just evil, she's still Mm -hmm. shouting for her mum. Like she's just desperate to not be severed from Pan. Yeah, there was... I thought that whole scene was it was really beautifully done. Little like shots of Pan kind of peeping through the window, looking scared. Her sort of screaming, the way she was screaming with her and everything. And Mrs. Coulter's face when she sees her. Yeah, when she walks in to view this demo. It's, it's that bit when she hears her shout "mother." Mm. She sort of realizes, and I think that just kind of yeah tugs on her massively. It- and she runs to the console and sort of slams the emergency stop button, I guess, on the machine. What I thought was mm-hmm. interesting is as she does it, suddenly scientist one, female scientist, makes out as if she was about to do it as well. It's kind of like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's the right thing to do. I'll pretend I was going to do that. Um, Lyra is let out of the machine. The the nurse and the doctor too both look a bit like, oh, shit. What have we done? Oh, I fucked up. And Miss Coulter and the Golden Monkey are kind of crouched at this point in pretty much the same position, mm. kind is of that, pressed against the glass. Now, Is that I, supposed to show an alignment with Coulter and her kind of inner emotions? Well, it is moment? interesting that I haven't seen it really with the other characters, but Mrs Coulter often, or the, the monkey often mirrors, they mirror each other mm. with their actions. Like when they were um, fighting the Egyptians that were in the house, they were like pummeling them in exactly the same way. Yes, they were. So there's these moments where they just seem to be really in sync, like physically. Um, and like I say, you don't really see it with the other characters. Mm. So that's really interesting. Like I say, I wonder if that's the moments when they are sort of a bit more aligned in emotion or thought. Yeah. And Mrs. Coulter reaches out to touch the glass in front of her as if to reach out for Lyra. Um, yeah. And the next scene, we have Lyra and Mrs. Coulter in her quarters. Yeah, in Coulter's chambers. And Coulter's mm. giving her a cup of tea to calm her her and saying I was a very emotional child and you know this used to calm me Mm. now I felt like Daphne Keane and um Ruth Wilson looked particularly alike in this scene Mm -hmm. like they just looked really I've noticed a mother-daughter resemblance before and we've spoken about that in Mm. one of our big spoiler bits Um, Mm. and I think that's kind of clever casting because obviously they've eschewed the blonde hair that Lyra's famous for but Mm. I don't think that necessarily matters that much because what they have done is a good family resemblance between those two I think Mm. you you could believe that their mother and daughter especially in scenes like this yeah absolutely I'd also say in this kind of silent, very kind of face acting moment, Oof. Daphne King's really good. She's got a face. You know what it is? I think it's her upper lip. She's got quite an unusual upper lip. She seems to be able to act with it. You seem to have really analysed her face in great It detail. is, because this this bit is all about her face. And like you say, she does a really good job of it, but I think it's, it is a lot in the lip. I think it's interesting because in the scene when she's in the intercision machine and she's really throwing it all out there, screaming, mm. shouting, banging, she's good, really good. And in this scene, when it's a much more quiet, subdued, kind of almost subtext 
but you're mm-hmm. seeing being acted out. She's also really good. I think that in general, she is a good actor, but I think that when she's at her weakest in terms of what she performs, it's when she's just kind of doing normal everyday talk kind of thing and when she's just sort of telling people what's what. It's almost like at the extreme ranges of her acting range, she's really brilliant, whereas Mm. in the middle, she's just sort of pretty good, okay, you know? Mm. So cool to sort of... She's surprised that Lyra knows who she is. Yeah, who told you that? Yeah. But either way, you know now, I know now. Coulter knows that Ira knows that Coulter's Lyra's mother. Yeah. <laughs> and Everyone she, knows. She sort of says, well, we'll talk. I can guess what your first question is. And she explains why she gave Lyra up. Mm. And that it was essentially that she wasn't ready, that it was the best thing for both of them, that Asriel had his own ideas about what to do. And... Yeah. Well, what she says is that she wasn't equipped. Yeah. And again, I'm reading totally into this, and I'm thinking part of it was like not emotionally equipped because oh, she comes from a rich background and things yeah and again i think it speaks of this maybe a time when mrs coulter hadn't mastered her emotions in the way that she has now mm. well, has she mastered them really no or have they just gone well, because you can't that's the that's yeah. the thing you just bury them to a point where they become all twisted and you do weird things as a result of them yeah she does she is quick to point out that it wasn't because she didn't care. Yeah. Just wasn't equipped. Mm. And she says it and she never meant to hurt her. Yeah. Either. And that sort of brings up the topic of indecision. Mm. We get a pretty good description here of what indecision is and what how dust relates into that. We've kind of had it a bit more drip fed in the books, I think. Coulter uh, sort of says that they're basically trying to save people from dust. It's too late for adults because they're already infected, but they can save children from dust and the, the sin that it brings, essentially. Yeah. And she, she also says that it's demons. As you get older, demons bring troublesome thoughts, and that's what lets the dust in. Yeah. What I found interesting about this bit is, and you might be able to tell by all of this, that much to my dis- my own disgust, I'm becoming a partial Coulter sympathiser because of the way they've characterised her in this. She says that dust infects adults with sin and that brings things like guilt and regret. To me, mm. she's talking directly about herself in that. She's talking about feelings of guilt. She often seems to talk about having f- feelings and needing to push them down yeah. and having f- things she feels like, that she somehow feels like things she's feeling are wrong. But don't don't feel too bad for her because, you know, if she's feeling guilt, why is she doing things that make her feel that guilty? Particularly, like, hurting children. Yeah, because damaged people do can do really fucked up things. That's true. As she said, that, um, like I said, the, the demons bring troublesome thoughts and feelings. Again, I feel like she's talking about herself. Those troublesome thoughts and feelings are her own. And to me, the reason she's so obsessed with trying to do this comes from a place of... She's trying to separate herself from the monkey, from her own feelings. Yes, she wants to prevent, and potentially she genuinely thinks that she is doing the right thing. She genuinely thinks that people deserve to be saved from feeling the kind of feelings that she has had because Mm. she's so traumatised by whatever's happened to her. Yeah. Which is, oof. And Lyra then says, but if it's so good, Mm. why wouldn't you let it happen to me? Yeah. And caught her then busts out the line about, you know, sometimes 
when we're trying to push boundaries, people have to be sacrificed. And it's, it's the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few is essentially the, the Dr. Spock version of it. Yeah. Mr. Spock, sorry. <laughs> Dr. Um, Spock, Mr. Spock. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mrs. Court says that the process isn't suitable for liars. So yeah. There's this clear separation of like, it's okay for those few people to get hurt as long as it's those few over there that aren't connected to me yeah. or don't. She says, until it's perfected, it's not suitable for you. Yeah. And exactly like you said before, um, she's viewing it very much as an us and them situation. Mm-hmm. And she's somehow superior. She's not the sacrifice. She's the people that get to benefit from the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. She does say that Lyra's friends will be safe when Lyra protests a bit. And she's like, yeah, too Mom's late. Mom's already dead. Of <laughs> <laughs> course, it's not that bothered. No. She doesn't even feign that she's that bothered. She's like, oh, well. She does talk about indecision being her calling and that it's her goal to help people. And then that's what made me think again about perhaps, I think in the books I got the sense that Mrs Court was driven by a need for power and control over things. But this seems like it's been played a bit more for like the scarier kind of version, which is that she she genuinely... Yeah, she genuinely believes in this. And that's kind of horrifying because that's one of the most horrifying things about religion right like people who honestly will do terrible things thinking that it's what it's god love. wants yeah yeah, yeah. And that that's scary yeah. but people that burn their children because they think they're witches or things like that because yeah. I, I mean that's a real thing that happens yeah that's that's happened in britain not even that long ago really yeah people there was a strange spate of it i say strange because it's just a really fucking strange thing to do yeah. where few cases over the course of a relatively short period of time just a few years where a number of children died as a result of really extreme exorcism techniques because mm. their family felt that they were either witches or they were possessed um, and it seems to come out of a very traditional interpretation of christianity there there were more than one child had died as a result of essentially torturing that was supposed to be exorcism that was supposed to be saving the child's soul Mm. Uh, and and a lot of this comes down i think to rather than the families themselves just deciding that was the thing to do uh, possibly certain religious leaders that were in fact like we talked about before not that interested in saving people just interested in their own crazy needs and power Mm. I think maybe Mrs. Court does believe, and that's the scariest. Yeah. You know, that's that to me is the scariest and really sad thing as well. I think to kind of because I must be conflicting. If you're if you're a parent and you love your child, but you also very strongly believe in your religion and, and your the two child are at odds with each, each other. other, it's just a bit like how would you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you see it in like the Christian gay conversion camps. Yeah. You look like I've just depressed, you know. Yeah, I just, I don't know how we can get back from this conversation. We've just sort of gone wholesale into the world of modern child abuse. Do you want to, like, just get in bed and cry for a bit? I think that might help. Or or we could just push on past this incredibly morbid topic and carry on with (laughs) the podcast, I guess. Okay. Um, So. I mean, the upshot of all this is that Lyra kind of ends up basically saying that she's glad Coulter came and found her. Mm Mm-hmm. And sort of tricking Coulter into thinking that she'll stay with her. Coulter relaxes, lets her guard down, and asks about the alethiometer, which she thinks the Master of Jordan's given to Lyra, and she's very worried that it will fall into Azriel's hands. Yeah. So 
this is where I kind of stopped the sympathy a little bit because I was like, I wondered whether Mrs. Coulter had her eyes on the alethiometer the whole time. I often wonder things like that with Coulter. Is it all a facade to get to what she wants? Mm, I don't Could know. Be. Or is it just a bit of both that she genuinely does love Lyra and those things are real, but also she has this thing and she... Yeah, this overarching goal and mm. she won't let go of it no matter what. Yeah, because that's its own thing that she she wants to destroy Asriel. She wants to bring him down, but we don't fully know why. Not yet. No. And, I mean, oh, do we maybe think that it's a little bit emotional? Oh, I, I think so. I think it's related to their past relationship and maybe Lyra as the product of that relationship um, cost her a lot because mm. thanks to Lyra being born she couldn't hide that it had happened and she lost her husband status power it's possible probable that the only reason she was with the politician was for power and money and mm. she kind of lost that one thing that she'd been going after there maybe I don't know mm. but anyway Lyra says well I've got the alethiometer and, and you can have it yeah she yes. hands over the tin that she trapped the spy fly in when she was on the way to the north with the Egyptians and that got me to thinking where did that come from <laughs> they made her strip off and change in the last episode did they not know I mean where was she hiding that tin that's a big tin I don't want to think about where a child would be able to hide that tin yeah let's just activate suspension of disbelief mode and pretend that that's yeah. fine <laughs> in the in the books we do kind of get a bit more of a because well, she goes back and gets it basically yeah. when she's sneaking around but none of that happens here she doesn't mm. do a sneaky sneak around Bolvanger at night and retrieve her possessions or anything she doesn't mm. retrieve them till later on during the escape yeah so here we've just kind of got that little bit of kind of hang on a minute well, that's that? a bit, that's a bit strange yeah and also where's the actual Alethiometer. Oh, yeah. I mean, that must be on her as well, wherever she hit the spy flight in, unless that's with her other clothes that she retrieves later. I don't know. It's mm. all quite baffling. Yes. And there is no answer. So, this is brilliant because I paused iPlayer just at the point where Mrs. Coulter opens the tip. <laughs> and the spy and fly was, zips out. Yeah. And it was brilliant because it had like the best expression ever. It was one of those, you know, these brilliant accidental pauses where you get it just in a real good face. <laughs> what did she look like? Show me she the face. <laughs> It was more what she was doing with her arms. She was kind of just like, kind of splayed out a bit. It was just, it was just good. <laughs> just got to trust me on that one. So they, as in they, as in the monkey and um, Coulter are a bit like stunned. The flies attacking them. Lyra makes a run for it. Yeah. And there's this brilliant moment where they're both banging on the door, just yelling at each other. <laughs> yeah, because Lyra is trying to smash the locking mechanism with a fire extinguisher. She's screaming at the door. Coulter's mm. banging to get out, screaming at the door. It's like this brilliant moment of like, that's all the rage that's been hidden yeah. between them pouring out at the door. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's quite a moment. And, and Pan actually has to tell her in the end, like, Lyra, that's enough. Yeah, let's go, Lyra. You can tell it's a little bit more than just her locking the door. There is some emotion yeah, there. Yeah, she's unleashing rage. Yeah, because that's one thing I don't think you get an awful lot of in this is how Lyra does feel about her, her mother. Because obviously she kind of says she hates Mrs. Coulter and blah, 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 blah. But there must be some anger there as well. And I feel like there are moments when they're talking when she almost gets it. Because just before she gets given the tin, uh, Mrs. Coulter says it's time to choose a side. Mm -hmm. Lyra says, uh, Lord Asriel left me. You saved me. 
And there is truth to that. There is. And Lyra must realise that as well, that, that Lord Azriel just kind of fucked off. Yeah, but he wanted her to stay where he thought she'd be safe, let's be honest. It wasn't yeah, but his she don't think she saw to... it as that, did she? she no, she, she might not. She begged to go with him and he denied her, whereas... It's true, but I'm pretty sure that she'd also be aware that what Coulter saved her from was Coulter. <laughs> I mean, you know, that machine's there because of Coulter. That death camp's there because of Coulter. Those kids are there because of Coulter. Coulter saved Lyra from Coulter. You know, Coulter didn't do a good thing. She just paused doing a bad thing for one person. <laughs> yeah, that is actually a good point. But I didn't know whether there'd been a, a sort of a moment in her mind where she, she'd kind of... Had a hesitance. Yeah even yeah. though she knew what she was going to do. And that rage when she's hitting the door is because... If you she did this to me. Yeah, like, she's angry at her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you can't be angry unless you have... I know, it's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Not if, you were, if you were indifferent... Mm. Well, yeah, if you were indifferent, maybe not love, but if you were indifferent, you wouldn't get that angry. But how mm. can you be indifferent? Mm. After, after all of the fear that Lyra was in just minutes before. Yeah. That'd be pretty hurtful to realise that's what your, your mother is capable of. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, she runs away from the room and sounds the fire alarm as she goes, and we sort of see the children donning their outdoor clothes, getting ready to leave. Yeah. She uh, asks Roger to free the seven children. Not sure, again, why she thinks that's a good idea for him to go and do that yeah. on his own. Yeah, and he sort of says, what if they won't come? You can do it, Roger. Go, just go fucking do it, or we'll have a plot hole. <laughs> <laughs> there are just some funny moments of, like, just blind faith that do work out because that's what happens in the plot but also I just wish you know they'd got a few of the kids to go and sort of usher them on a little bit might have made it a bit more yeah maybe he should have gone mob handed but then again the other kids are probably less capable and aware of what's happening than Roger I mean you've got the problem that when the other kids run into that room and see seven children for the first time and they're not just going to be like oh shit what's been happening and you know at least Roger knows what he's walking into he's got a better chance than the rest of them that's true I think maybe okay so maybe for me it would have been better if the adults the Egyptians would have come the Egyptians. The Egyptians. <laughs> well, they're dead. Well, oh, the ancient no. Egyptians are dead anyway. The Egyptians tell us. realise, no, the Egyptians are not dead <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, the, the Egyptians that have turned up and kind of gone to get the children and took them from there and kind of looked after them and stuff. I just think it's very odd to send a, Roger. a child. Yeah. To go and get severely yeah but you need the big reveal of the Egyptians late and you need the dramatic reveal yeah. when they arrive you know you, you've got to sacrifice something somewhere if you're going to tell the story the way they're telling it I guess mm, um, true. I suppose it might have made more sense for a Egyptian to just go and get them later later that's what I meant as in like towards the end uh, like I feel like it didn't need to be like because unlike in the books Bolvanga doesn't just get completely wrecked no they could have just done that towards the end when they're kind of assuring the children out they could have gone yeah, to get them it's true. but it doesn't really matter that it's not that important it's just my own minor little book there Lyra runs off to do what she does best which is cause, cause chaos, chaos. Uh, she, gets- she goes running off down the corridors sorry mm. but at this point because I was I, I keep wanting to say it whenever we're discussing <laughs> Bolvanger but we never really get a point to discuss what Bolvanger looks like so it reminds me of Hadley's Hope a bit from Aliens from the outside in particular these squats kind of prefab, uniformly built, almost militaristic buildings. Mm. The the kind of spot utilitarian look of it. It is like how a bit 
quite a lot actually like how I imagined it in the books but it's a bit less clinical and a bit more militaristic and it, I kind mm-hmm. of realised as I was watching it that it reminds me of the, the colony and aliens basically it reminds me of Hadley's Hope yeah I think in, and I wanted to say that for a reason which is coming up okay <laughs> I think in the in the books I think it's described a bit more and I imagined it a bit more as being like a hospital mm. kind of with those, with those slight kind of minimalist kind of features but maybe yeah like a little bit more hospital and a bit less militaristic. Yeah, but I, I, I like the way yeah, it Yeah, it still works. It still, it still yeah. works perfectly well. Lyra goes to get changed into her outdoor gear and um, it's at this point that the nurse appears that they spoke to previously. Yeah. Um, she sort of tries to stop her. Yes. And this is the point where we get a little reveal. Now, it's a bit weird because we've seen the nurses throughout the, the hospital. We've seen that they are a little bit vacant looking, a yeah. bit kind of gone with the wind. And um, they also don't have demons with them. Yeah, but, but a again, lot of characters we see without yeah. demons. So that's a bit difficult to know how much of a real it is to say the nurse's demon has been severed. severed. Yeah, Lyra says, what was his name? The demon Ooh. they took away from you. She took away from you. Nicholas. Nicholas. I loved him so much. And she just starts to glaze over and go vacant. And she says, isn't she keeps repeating his name? Yeah, Nicholas. Nicholas. I like the way she says his name, though. I think she might be, like, um, Scandinavian, because she sort of says Nicholas. Yeah. And then Lyra just walks past and leaves her to it. I just thought that was really sad. And that isn't something that is in the book, but it's something I very much appreciate. The nurses have been severed from their demons, and that's why the nurses are a bit vacant and compliant. But their demons are still with them. Mm-hmm. They're just not connected anymore. It's the whole, your demon just basically becomes a pet. It's not your soul anymore, yeah. sort of thing. And there's a bit of a question as to how they've managed to survive the process and be so with it when, obviously, all the other children and stuff. And it and might be the exact age. same question here. Yeah. Like, if they're talking about, you know... It, it's only recently a development that people even stay conscious afterwards. Why is there a nurse who is, apart from being prone to glazing over and needing to be snapped out of it, like she's relatively functional, far more so than the children. Is it different when you sever an adult? Are they more likely to survive? Is it just that every so often somebody does do well afterwards and the nurses are some of the rare few? There's still the big question of like, why is it so different for the nurses than the children? I think mm. I don't think that goes answered at all. No, no. But I did like that that moment. I thought that was yeah. quite strong, and I liked it. It sort of made the nurses a bit more almost not understandable as to why they're going along with it because they're a bit more brainwashing. You kind of see that they have been hurt too, and they're not super happy about the situation they've found themselves in. Yeah, I mean, I do. I kind of want to talk a bit more around this point, but I might, because I haven't really got any big spoilers, I might leave it for, like, Chris's controversial analysis at the end, let's call it, because I don't want to derail the discussion at the moment, particularly because we're relatively close to the end of the episode. Okay, yeah. But we'll put a pin in that and I'll come back to it. Yeah, so after Lyra's um, run away, uh, we then go to Roger arriving at the room where the children are, had seven children and he tries to get them to leave and he's like come on kids and they don't follow him yeah so you can do it yeah he gives a little speech look at what they've done to you do something or do nothing those are your choices and he says that they can make the people that did this to them pay 
I don't really like this bit just because I don't feel like... You never like it when children do inspirational speeches and everyone goes, yeah, I'll follow the child. It makes more sense when it's children trying to follow the child, I guess. Yeah, but I, on the whole, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of that because I don't think children are not that eloquent, for a start. Very rarely, I would imagine. Very, very rarely. Um, Greta Thunberg aside. I was just thinking... <laughs> yeah, she she. But, I mean, is very... she spends she spends time writing those speeches. Yeah, They're not, not impromptu. Yes, exactly. Whereas in this, children even speeches left, right, and centre. So that kind of bothers me a little bit. And the idea that they take that on board. Yeah, even though they basically are only capable of counting alarm buzzes and can't. Yeah, and can't like speak properly or can't seem to you know yeah. see what's going on I mean, we find out later that they can't speak or at least mm. that they don't speak they're, they're non-communicative yeah um but somehow to him doing the speech seems to to rouse them from it i like the fact that they did show the children but i just wish they'd done something different in these little bits to make mm. it a bit more i think your point that maybe later on someone could have just come and collected them once the battle was over, that maybe would have made more sense. Mm. I guess maybe there's a dramatic element to it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's very like, we've got to fight them, got to make them pay, but it's like... Now's but, the time, get out, you know. But they are but they are children, and at the moment they are very vulnerable children. Who Soulless are, children. Yes. So I think more than anything, what they need is, like, comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Rather than inspirational speeches. Nonetheless, Roger, you've done your speech. Yeah. Lyra then goes to um, blow up the indecision machine. Yeah. I liked how this bit was done. Yeah, it she cool. She essentially fires it up without closing the door, which is exactly what the scientists and nurses discussed you should never do earlier on. Mm. She presses all the buttons. Pan says, like, basically, what are you doing? She's like, don't know doing everything basically presses all the buttons and eventually it fires up and sort of implodes yeah did you not think it was cool though how it looked how it like it was all bending inwards it wasn't yeah. like even when it actually exploded it wasn't like a movie explode with the flame it was just like a i mean it looked like it sort of it generated a magnetic field that crushed mm. it um, yeah. because the door was open so maybe the kind of door in the housing of it's like a faraday cage that contains the electromagnetic field it creates be a bit like an MRI machine, maybe. Have you ever seen videos on YouTube of people throwing metal into an MRI machine? No. I mean, it's a really bad idea to do that, but also people have done it and it's on YouTube. What does happen there? You haven't said what does happen. Before. Oh, well, because MRI is magnetic resonance imaging. They generate a throbbing, great, massive magnetic field. Um, so if you put something metal in them, it just goes crazy and flies around in this magnetic field just a, a tremendous speed and with huge force slamming off the insides of it. Um, and if you have metal near a machine like that, when it's running, it gets sucked into it. Having tattoos, if there's metal in the ink, can be quite a painful experience, I'm told, when you go in an MRI machine. What if you have something like a coil? They would remove that first if it's ferrous, if it is susceptible to magnetic fields. Ooh. Yeah. But you, you basically, you have a containment area around them, a room in which no metal is allowed to be placed because, well, you can imagine if someone accidentally left their metal fountain pen on the table next to the machine and you switched it on with a patient in it, they're, they're getting a metal fountain pen up the ass at great speed. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's real dangerous. And it reminded me of that, of kind of like she breaches the magnetic containment and then just all hell breaks loose. What would happen if you had earrings in? They get ripped out. 
you have to take all your piercings out. Yeah, I thought magnetic. so, but like, would they just pull out? Like, yeah, they fly which out direction? Um, they go out towards the wall, but I believe, so I'm not a big expert on MRIs and exactly how they work, but I think that the polarity of the magnetic field switches rapidly because from what I've seen, the metal objects fly around inside as if they're constantly being attracted in different directions. Mm. So your earring would yank out at great speed and just sort of roll around the inside of the machine uncontrollably. Oh, yeah, and I got real excited because those videos are spectacular. I'm definitely looking at those. Um, yeah, so she she blows that up. Um, we don't get to see the flower explosion that we thought was being set up earlier. Yeah, we saw Mark Costas showing Lyra that flower explodes, and, and exploding flower is a thing in the book, but not here. So it kind of felt a bit weird because it's like you actually set it up perfectly and then didn't use it. Yeah, it could be that they edited it out of the yeah. scene or something felt that it was too much made the episode too long yeah because she does blow enough stuff up already they might have been like well it's a bit extra yeah. so the machine going all look good enough people yeah. all like that and we did mm-hmm. the balloon approaches bubblevanger it does do you like all the shots of the balloon i've always wanted to go on a hot air balloon so any shots of uh, lee and the balloon are much appreciated yeah uh, Miss Coulter escapes through a vent. Yeah, which is a very Lyra thing. Lyra is normally the one crawling yeah. around in Bolvanga vents. Well, I've, lo- but... I've seen lots of like mother, like daughter yeah. um, sort of pictures. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's a golden monkey that suggests that to is like, I've got this great way of getting. Oh, yeah, he leads her into the sort of little cupboard where the vent is because the golden monkey is a big fan of vents as well. So mm. it makes sense that he'd know where it was. Plan. The children are trying to escape. Yeah, but they're stopped by Tartars at the mm. exit. Well, the door's locked at one side and the Tartars are behind them. Yeah, with the male scientists. Yeah, Doctor Two. And the Egyptians appear. They stab everyone. Yeah, they <laughs> kill the men. Marcosta has quite a, an interesting moment here in yeah. that she, you know, do you know who my son was moment? And he do you was remember like, Billy Costa? He was like, I was just obeying orders. And she freaking breaks his neck. Yep. Brutal. I mean, I'd say in some ways that's more brutal than just like shooting someone or like whatever. It's like it's getting very hands personal, isn't it? It's a take real... tight a lot of force as well to yeah. snap someone's neck. Yeah, Mark Costa's kind of gotten her shit together a lot. Yeah, <laughs> she's gone from being like the sort of person where we're discussing like is Mark Costa too weak? I'm sure she should be stronger than this, and now she's basically Rambo, like yeah. <laughs> in body and spirit. Yes, more guards turn up. Then Lee Scoresby appears and shoots them. It's all like... Yeah, shoots someone in the back. Yeah. So it's just got a dramatic reveal after dramatic after reveal. reveal. The Tartars are here. Mark Oster's here. Lee Scoresby's here. They're all doing murders. <laughs> and then Mark Oster kind of convinces the children that they're, they're safe and that they should follow her. Lyra is kind of trying to get out. She's attacked and tackled by a guard. Yeah, who, who vanishes <laughs> up. Like sudden flash of white and this guard's lifted off of his feet by his head and vanishes off the top of the shot. Mm. Exactly the way the aliens attack people in Aliens, which reminded me even more of Hadley's Hope. You know, the aliens love dragging people up through ceiling vents and the like. And when we see what's going on up there, it's Yorick. He's on the roof and he's... Exchanging witty quips with Lyra. because you have to. The heroes have to be funny in battle. Otherwise you might pay too much attention to the fact that your heroes are killing people yeah well it's quite interesting because Yorick is a little bit more jovial in this I think 
yeah, well, he's doing what bears love. He's having a war. Yeah. This is what they live for. This is almost the thing that Father Coram promised him. You know, he could be out there hunting seals and going to war. And he's kind yeah. of like, one out of two yeah, ain't bad. Living the dream. The next scene is just one sentence or one line that I've put here, which is Mrs. Coulter pops a squat. Yeah. For no reason, she escapes out of the vent and she just kind of squats there for a while. <laughs> In a really awkward way. I'm not sure why they put this scene in, because yeah. it's very odd. Well, I saw that, and the first thing I thought is, like, this is going to end up being one of those really weird celebrity upskirt photos on a dodgy porn site somewhere, because it's just a shot straight between her knees for longer than it needs to be. Yeah, I mean, you don't see anything. But It's, it's, just... it's the most tasteful upskirt they could have done, but, you know, it's still weird. Yeah, I'm not really sure what this was. Was this meant to be her just kind of having a moment? Yeah, I don't know. I genuinely couldn't say. Is this one of those like, oh, hang on a minute, we've we've edited the episode a bit too short. We need to find three seconds out of a scene here somewhere. Boom. Yeah. Good old Ruth. She held that squat for ages. We'll just she throw did, a bit she of that. She must have thighs of steel. She's just like, I mean, even if it's pretend, she still had to like lower herself down out of a vent and the, in a in a like tight pencil skirt and then squat on a table in heels, I believe. Yeah. Like fair play. That's some difficult stuff. Some Got good squatting Dirty thighs. Well done, you. Yeah. Um, back to the main fight. Yeah, every, everyone's just having a bit of a fight at this point. Everyone's getting involved. There's, there's Egyptians, there's the guards. I feel like there's not a lot of people. Yeah, it's quite a small-scale battle compared to what you'd imagine. It's happening in this sort of courtyard between buildings, mm. so it makes it all very focused. But I just think there were more Egyptians... And there's 60 Tartars, apparently. So are we just to imply maybe that the fighting is happening all over the compound, I guess? Yeah, because in the books, they've already kind of gone out of Bolvanga. The children have started walking into the snow. and It's more of a running battle, isn't it? Yeah, and there's that snowball fight bit where they just throw snowballs at the Tartars. Yeah, to blind them. Yeah, so they can do a bit of a runner and then the Egyptians arrive. Yeah, it's all a bit more out in the open. I, I think it's fine that they did it inside. Yeah, I quite like it, actually. I guess it focuses the fight so they don't need as many people fighting on screen. Yes. I don't know whether that's a good thing. Well, they can get thing. away with it a bit more, yeah. not having as many, because I guess it would be expensive and difficult to have large-scale battle going on. Um, Nonetheless, Egyptians kind of seem to be on the back foot a bit. Yes. Can I just um, say, I don't know how the Egyptians got in. They were inside, behind a door that the children had discovered was locked. And I guess there wouldn't be an alarm going off because there was already an alarm going off, the fire alarm. But it's suddenly everyone's in anger inside the buildings. I mean, you know, I don't know if that matters that much, but mm. it was just a bit of a strange moment. Nice bit of a dramatic reveal. Yeah. I'm glad they've arrived anyway. Yeah. Uh, Doctor One, though, orders um, the guards to kill the adults. He says she's yeah. the special one, the children are the special ones. You can kill everyone else. Yeah. And it's kind of at this point that... Uh, Seraphine Pickler doesn't appear and I, I mean I can't even describe what she does I tried to write down what she does and I was like I don't even know how to put that into words well she starts off shooting someone with an arrow yeah. or some such and then she flies down and at great speed moves from Tartar to Tartar stabbing them and killing them and as the Tartars are being sort of shown moving in slow motion she's still moving way faster than a normal human could so she's just jumping from person to person killing them with supernatural speed 
but kind of with a whooshy, yeah, like swooshy a, effect. Almost like watching Neo from The Matrix when he's not in slow motion. She basically moves and fights like Calabrimbor from Lord of the Rings, is what she's doing. Who knows? He was the he was the smith that forged the rings of power. Is that, and, a, is uh, that a book thing? It's an extended lore thing. I couldn't tell you if it's okay. in the books because I've only read the main three. Well, yeah, it's, the it's not in the films, though, is what I mean. I don't think so, no. I, I can't remember if he's kind of just shown a bit in the films in some of the sort of very vague flashback bits that you see. But like he's a he's one of the kind of elder people, the same as um, Sauron. Mm. And Sauron essentially gets him, he's like a master smith, gets him to forge the rings of power for him. Mm. And then he essentially tries to stop him from using the rings of power for evil mm. and gets sort of kill banished in the way that those ghost dudes in the mountain are so you know there's that whole army of like ghostly people in the mountains Mm -hmm. he sort of becomes one of them but because he was one of the kind of i can't remember what they're called the ancient race that are a bit like high elves Mm. um the same as what sauron is i think it begins with an r v even v yeah i can't remember now there's loads of lord of the rings fans Mm -hmm. going you're fucking all this up chris but yeah but basically then he appears in a video game um and possesses like a ranger and when the ranger fights under his possession, that's how Celebrimbor moves. He just like zips from person to person, slitting throats and shooting arrows and all the rest of it. And like, that's pretty much exactly what Seraphine is doing. Anyone who's played those games will be like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. That's exactly right. Anyone that hasn't will be like, "That was shut up now. That was a minute of my life I just wasted. So yeah, Seraphina does, does her thing. She kills Dr. One. I think both of the kills of the two doctors are kind of surprising in a way because we haven't had a lot of just death like violent death I guess yeah but it's all coming out now and I'm glad it is Mm. because again it shows they're not shying away from that they didn't shy away from it in the books they're not shying away from it here that's a good thing in my opinion it means that they are potentially brave enough to tackle the really hard stuff that's to come later in the stories that's a good sign after she's done that Serafina kind of just vanishes yeah well she sort of takes one breath like then she's gone off into the sky and it appears that basically all the the baddies are dead yeah she's just marked everyone which and, and you that's know, the end of the battle seems a bit a bit too easy in some ways that bit i didn't like the mm-hmm. way she was just like oh well, yeah i'll just uh, kill well, everyone there the thing here is that in the book she comes down with multiple witches and they are sort of the, the final blow yeah forth. yeah but they are the witches are the final blow yeah. um here they've just gone with one witch who is the final blow. And it seemed a bit less dramatic because it's like, bitch, you're so super. You could have done all this on your own. You could have just been like, Lyra's in trouble in there. There's no point in risking the lives of the Egyptians and stuff when I can just move faster than light and kill everybody in the place. Yeah. Just Sam Fisher at Seraphina, going on your own, kill all the baddies, rescue all the goodies. Let's just, just, just have a happy ending. That's within your capacity. But she doesn't. Yeah, and that's a little bit look a bit odd we do get a shot of mrs coulter peering around a door i assume looking at what's just happened because you don't yeah. really see what she's looking at you just see her face and looking around a door right. it's, it's classic to one action reaction so yeah she's looking at the yeah battle. so and she's quite teary-eyed and she's sort of slowly back yeah. away looking sad she nopes the hell out of there basically yeah. that foot <laughs> well i mean you would if you yeah you would you, you would Roger then leads the severed children outside. Everyone kind of stares yeah. in kind of shock and horror, I think. And the, then the adults gather around 
to hug them. And even kind of Lyra hugs Bridget McGinn. And as everyone's essentially making ready to leave the battleground, Lyra tells Marcos to basically, you know, it was it was Billy that proved that we could escape. Mm. And Marcosta says, you know, go with Lee. You've, you've come here for more than just these children. Which bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> As it did in the books when they encourage Lyra to do stuff like follow Lord Asriel and stuff. I'm just like, really? You've done well, Lyra. This has been really dangerous and you're lucky to have survived. Well done, go do more danger stuff. Go to Svalbard with loads of armoured bears. Cause a ruckus. Yeah, it's just... the best thing you can do. I can't imagine why Marcos would be down with this. Because if she says, come with us, Lyra, it's too dangerous, and Lyra agrees, your story ends there. (laughs) I know, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, sometimes you just got to... You've just got to go go. with it sometimes, Yeah, I guess. Um, But anyway, Lyra, Yorick, Lee, Roger, they're boarding the balloon, and we get, like, this oddly calm and sarcastic conversation between Lee and Roger. mm -hmm. It's kind of like, Roger, you've been through a lot. You were not okay earlier, but suddenly you're just a normal kid again. Yeah. It gets introduced to Yorick, same kind of thing. Bit of bounce. You're big. You're not what I expected. (laughs) Refers to Lee as the balloon driver. Lee's a bit enraged by this, but controls it well. Yeah, I'm like, all right, you're getting annoyed at, like, a child. Balloon driver. (laughs) I'm an aeronaut kid. Yeah. All right. Only a fucking balloon. I've just brought down the evil empire. Well, that'd be like, <laughs> what have you been up to? That'd be like somebody, like imagine a child going to you, like, you're a teacher, and you're going, no, I'm a lecturer. Can you imagine being like that, being that insecure in your in your job that <laughs> yeah. you're like, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm insecure in my job in a myriad of other ways. But, but just not but, in that way. But not in that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so they take off in the balloon. Um, there's the children of Bolvang wave goodbye to Lyra and Roger. I bet they're just like, what do you mean we've got to walk back and they get a balloon? Are you kidding me? You know what? If I was one of those seven children, I'd be like, I don't care about Mrs. Coulter. I hate Lyra and Roger for like making me walk back. I don't think they're thinking like that. I don't know if they're thinking anything at all. I mean, I would be because I hate having to walk anywhere unnecessarily. Yeah. So... I'd be hell mad. I've noticed that. I've had to bribe you with ice cream for like a two-mile walk in the past. <laughs> You'd already made me walk. I don't know how many miles, but it felt like a long way. Yeah, okay. Roger and Lyra sort of cuddle up in the balloon. I always feel like, and people are going to hate me for saying this. Somebody's watching you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, I always feel like that if Lyra was just like a normal child, and they grew up normally. She'd be like, uh, boys. <laughs> no, that like her and Roger probably would have been a natural pairing. And I feel like moments like this kind of show that. And I think that's what makes the story interesting. Is that a big spoilers? Yeah. Yeah. The balloon flies over the mountains. The children are asleep. Serafina appears to have a chat with me. She says, I thought you could use a toe. For some reason then in my head, I was Did you like, think of a toe on your foot? Toe? Yeah, I did, yeah, I did think of it. She means a toe like I'll pull you. Yes. I'll pull you. Oh, God, I'm just going to stop there before before I make that even more innuendo-y than it was in my head. Yeah. Which was a lot, because it's me. And innuendo. I mean, this is okay. This is my least favourite part of the books. We've just covered it in the book podcast. I'm mm-hmm. so glad we've put it in the show. But I, think, <laughs> I mean, it's useful and it's short, so I'm happy about that. I was going to say, 
I thought you might be pleased that they kind of condensed it down and made it a lot more briefer. I am. Yeah. Yeah, I am. So they just had this one brief conversation because I've had some of the bits earlier on. So Lee kind of asks what comes next. You know, is there going to be more fighting and stuff? Yeah. And sort of like, you know, this is getting more complicated. He's he's after money. He wants more money is what's yeah. going on here. My contract's done. I want a new contract with more money. But I think from what Seraphine tells him, you know, about how important Lyra is, mm. how it's, you know, um, Lee's kind of role to look after her. He's like, oh, I wanted money, but you've kind of got me caught with love, basically. I don't yeah. really like that line, but I get the sentiment behind it. It also feels a bit chocked in. It, it feels like maybe they cut a couple of lines of dialogue out mm. in the edit that didn't quite work because it, it's not non sequitur, but it's kind of close to it because he's like, I didn't expect the conversation to go like this. I wanted some danger money and you gave me love. It's a bit like... And then she's like, good, basically, good. Yeah, she seems pleased that he's going to be the one to look after. Because he sort of realises, like, right, so she's going to save the world and I've got to look after her. Well, this sounds like a really expensive job to me. Yeah, this can sounds... imagine him putting on his best mechanic face and just sort of going, mm. it's a big job, it's going to cost you. <laughs> <laughs> but Serafina is, um, seems confident in his abilities. Oh. And then she hooks off again. Yeah, she, and then she says... The wind's strong. You're a good navigator. Peace out. There's a few things. Like, Thanks she... for the tow, then, Serafina. Thanks she's, for that. She's wrong in so many ways here at this point because mm. she trusts Lee to look after Lyra and she says he's a good balloon person and that the wind's good. None of these things are true. You're, you're about to be disappointed, Serafina. <laughs> but where are the other witches? One thing I did miss here was that there aren't really any other witches. We mm. don't get the sense of Serafina being a witch in charge of other witches, being a queen. Mm. We don't really get the Serafina being a sense of much of anything apart from like just this weird woman who randomly shows up and kind of acts all spooky. Yeah, Serafina's becoming the deus ex machina. Oh no. Kaiser was that a little bit in the books, although to be fair, it did make sense upon mm. reflection why he appears whenever he's needed. Mm. But Serafina appears whenever she's needed. She doesn't really do anything other than exactly what's needed of her, which is either A, exposition, or B, killing people. Mm. Oh, we're about to lose this fight. Serafina mm. comes down and we win. Oh, we're about to be really confused about why we're doing any of this. Serafina comes down and explains it. <laughs> I just, I still don't feel her as Serafina. She's not giving me them vibes. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's elements of it there, but she's just, maybe they won't develop her. I maybe hate they'll. That costume. I hate it so much. Did you notice when she was doing the fighty stuff? If you watch that scene mm. back, um, the dress doesn't move like a dress. It moves like it's moulded in a solid piece. Like yeah. there's a specific bit when she breathes in and the shoulder straps lift up off of her shoulders as if it's like solid. It is, yeah. You can see when she moves in it, it's it's all kind of like a solid fibrous piece, like it's been moulded round something. And I really hate it because they say in the books it's like meant to be scraps. Rags, yeah. yeah, like scraps of silk. And it just kind of floats off. Yeah, of that. because it's meant to show that they are they can handle the cold and they've just sort of I wonder if they made the costume with the intent of using um some visual effects trickery to add the floaty kind of scraps of silk flowing off her and stuff and then just didn't do it, couldn't afford it maybe. Or whether yeah. it's just sort of a bit of a wonky costume design. Yeah. Because a lot of the other costume designing in this although it's like very realistic it's very good yeah i mean none of it sticks out as weird like that does yeah but they've made good choices in terms of creating costumes for a world that is both kind of in the past but 
also a bit modern. A bit, bit modern and, and not of this world, and they've, they've done quite well with that. Mm. But for some reason, that just really doesn't, it really annoys me. Mm. Um, anyway, Seraphine is gone. Yeah. Cut to the Egyptians. In a wood, getting ready. Loading the severed demons onto cages while the severed children stand by. Oh, were they doing that? I didn't notice they had the demons as well. Yeah, they were like, oh, the cages are loaded and ready to go. Oh, I didn't notice um, that. Then. And then Father Corum, uh, I think, basically says, like, poor things, they just don't even speak anymore. Mm. And then Mark Oster and John Farr discuss the children and say, we'll take them back. John Farr's really worried that their families won't want them because of the state they're in. So Mark Oster says, well, we'll keep them. They'll become Egyptians if yeah. their families don't want them. Yeah. And, and, and she also says that Billy won't be the last child that they hurt, but the attack that the Egyptians have just succeeded in will make it much harder for them to hurt children in the future. And I, and I think that's kind of just a moment of like reminding the audience that we want there to be a season two. <laughs> The, the baddies aren't going away. This isn't a resolution. Just, you know, so mm. you know. But that was kind of nice in a way because I think sometimes, say if you've got the first book of a series, the, the characters will fight the big bad and you feel like you've got a resolution. And then in the second book, it's like you have to start from the beginning again, building up a reason why yeah, it's not resolved. Whereas with this, it's all very open. It's saying, yes, we've done this, but there is more to it. And, yeah. you know, this isn't the end kind of thing. Mark Costa also um, sort of praises John Farr because he has like a bit of a moment of doubt. He says he thought they'd bring Billy back, you know. He feels like they haven't done enough, but um, Mark Costa kind of says he'd be proud of us. Yeah. And they hold hands. Mm. Sexual tension developing. Is that, I mean, is holding hands sexual tension or is that just... just In my mind. That's just, it's happening at that point. In my mind, sitting on a warm bus seat, sexual tension. <laughs> I know. Um, balloon. Yeah. Night time. They pulled the canvases down over the top. Yeah. To get a bit of shut eye. The instruments start behaving oddly. Mm, the altimeter, it seems to be, is indicating that they're descending and one of the guide ropes is reeling out as if something's pulling it from below. Mm-hmm. And Lee's a bit wary. Yeah. We hear the sound of something flapping outside the balloon and Lyra sort of wakes up and Lee draws his gun. Weapon watch. <laughs> that is a Colt single action army revolver. Historically significant because Colt was the first company to sort of mass produce that type of revolver. And is that an American? That is. Yeah. Yeah. So, Cliff Ghosts. Yeah. Lee peeps out of the balloon and there's one on top but he doesn't notice it. Mm. He sort of goes back inside the balloon. Yeah. Basically, the cliff gas has hacked. Yeah, we could go through a whole blow-by-blow blow of what happens, yeah. but basically Shooting they attack. Shooting, fighting, punching, Yorick shouting, cliff gasts. And... Yeah, just in case you, you want to know what they are. Yeah. Um, like I say, Lee, you've basically let Seraphina Picala down, or Pecola down in the first, I don't know, we can only assume must be at least, I know, half an hour <laughs> of having that conversation. Yeah, you'll be all right, Lee. You'll look after her. You'll get her where she needs to go. Fuck Willie. <laughs> yeah. I don't really understand how Lyra manages to fall out of the door. Like, it seems like she just kind of, like, falls into it and it falls open. Yeah, well, there's a lot of kerfuffle and scuffle, and she falls against one of the flaps. It may be the flap that Lee had already opened to look out of or something, and then she's dangling off the side of the balloon, and Lee tries to get to her but can't, and she just falls into darkness. And Lee screams after her. End credits. Dun, dun, dun. Green Giant. 
<laughs> so, big spoilers. If you're leaving us for the spoilers discussion, then please engage with us on our social media. As we always ask you to, links are in the show notes. We'll see you next time. And for those of you that are staying, what were you going to say, Sarah? I nearly, I nearly revealed a clangor in the middle of... <laughs> the, 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 but it's going to be Lyra and Will that get it on. Yeah. So what I was going to say about Lyra and Roger was that I feel... I think I'd kind of felt like this when reading anyway, but I'm getting more of the feel from watching the TV show that, like I say, in a normal world, Lyra and Roger probably would have, like, grown up and, you know, because they're so close and they're best friends, they probably would have ended up um, together. together yeah. yeah. And in this world, they probably would have. But Lyra's dad's going to murder him, we yeah. hope, which is a really weird thing And I to feel say, like that but... makes it more tragic. And, yeah. I, and I, obviously at the moment, the love that Lyra has for Roger is very sort of childlike. Mm. So that's sort of different. But I don't know, I think that sense of almost like a possibility or a could have been hangs over that. And that, I feel like it makes it more poignant almost. Yeah, that she loses him. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that makes Will second best by any means. No. It just means that Roger never got the chance to be An in Lyra's life in that way. Yeah. Yeah. RIP future Roger. I guess we'll get to that later. <laughs> later. Yeah. Well, we, we think they'll tell it the way they do in the books. We hope they'll tell it the way they do in the books. Mm. Mm. That's, that's kind of all there is to say about I, it's that. It's really, I'll say that is really weird that at this point I'm like, I hope they kill Roger. It's a pivot, but also it's I a don't pivotal, hope, I hope they don't kill Roger. <laughs> it's, it's a pivotal moment in the story. And if they don't, mm. then they've got to replace it with something equally pivotal. Well, yeah, what would happen to him? He can't just go back to Oxford, can he? No, they are setting it up. I mean, the whole thing that Lyra will be a betrayer mm. that kind of refers directly to the fact that she inadvertently leads Roger to his death yeah um, although that said she saved him from what was quite possibly death anyway so you know and she didn't kill him on purpose or she didn't kill him but yeah. she doesn't take him to Asriel to be killed on purpose well, his story really is tragic isn't it yeah a lot of the poor children in those books have tragic stories I'm wondering if Phil was making a point with that, that even though Lyra is separated from her parents, she's still privileged and she still ends up making out fine. Yeah. I want to know what happens to the children afterwards. We may get to see. I mean, we've already seen more than we did in the books. Mm. So you never know. We may get to see. We may not. But, I mean, at least it's implied that they'll be safe. We've got some kind of closure <laughs> that if they survive what's happened to them, somebody's going to look after them. Mm -hmm. That's kind of nice to know. So... My issue that I said I'd leave uh -oh. till now is the demon thing. I'm sorry. We talked about kind of last episode how it was hard to know if it meant anything that we couldn't see the nurses' demons because you don't see a lot of people's demons. And now we find out that it did mean something. And that's fair enough. But I just still, I think this episode they showed demons slightly more. Like when oh, the Egyptians were I... trekking through the ice, you saw a couple yeah. more demons than you might have before. So when you had the kids outside at the fire alarm, Especially when they were in the um, snowball fight, there were lots of demons screwing around and overhead and yeah. various and it, and it wasn't one for one. It wasn't a demon per person, but it was enough to imply that there was a demon per person. Yeah. And I know that there are two stories coming from the production team. One is that it doesn't look right. You know, we, we tried it and it looks like a menagerie and you can't have all these demons milling around with nothing to do. And the other is they just couldn't afford it. And that's what the writer says. Now, I'm going to call bullshit on the 
it didn't look right to have demons milling around with nothing to do because it is standard practice in film and TV and visual media to have people milling around with nothing to do simply to make the world feel real and lived in. How many times have you watched even something like EastEnders and they're in the market and there's loads of people that aren't even characters, just extras hanging around in the background, making it look like a real lived in world. Lyra's real lived in world is full of demons. I don't believe that they didn't like it because they didn't want stuff hanging around with nothing to do because that's just standard practice in visual media. Mm. I think it's a money thing and I think that's okay. I can accept that. You want to tell the story and you don't have a limitless budget, but don't pretend that standard practice is stupid because you know it isn't. (laughs) Ranty rant. I know, and that's going to upset people. That's a divisive statement, but I just wanted to get it off my chest. Chris's ranty rant. I know. It is causing a bit of division, like one of the main... um, Social media groups. ...groups that we're part of. There's been a lot of um, arguments in there about um, how important this whole demon thing is. Some people think it's really important and they're really, you know, gutted about it and it's ruining it for them. Whereas some people are saying, let it go. There's yeah. even been discussion like that in our discussion group and it's mm. fair enough. Um, and generally speaking, it's not that much of a problem, but there are definite points where there are these pivotal moments where I feel like the importance of demons has been undermined through their portrayal in the show. That's not just about how many there are on screen. It's about mm. kind of human interaction with them and things like that. And that's the only time I take issue with it. And I think this is kind of another example where we actually said last week, we don't know if it matters or not. And it turns out it did. And it's kind of, it's just a bit of a shame. Yeah. I think what worries me in, in some of the social media groups, luckily not our own, is that it's got a bit like nasty and a bit personal. It's like, don't, don't do that, please. Yeah, it's not worth it. it. Nice. Just if, if you don't agree with people's opinions, yeah. it's fine to offer a counter opinion, but don't be personal. Like it's because essentially what it comes from is that we all love this piece of work, this body of work, and we want to talk about it. And that's why we care about it so much. But I don't want it to be a thing where it becomes like nasty or hateful because then then it's just not the rest of the world. Yeah, divided fandom. Mm. It would be unfortunate. But I mean, I think it is, like you say, it's testament to how much people love the books. It's testament to how much people love the show. Mm. Or, or even just the fact that someone's trying to make this good of an adaptation of it because they're putting in a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some stuff they're doing exceptionally well. I'll still maintain that episode four was it's just one of my favourite episodes of television of the year, really, possibly mm. longer. I've really enjoyed it. I enjoyed this episode quite a lot, but mm. number four is still Bay. It's still my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Yeah, I don't want to make this podcast just about gushing over it and never criticising it. Yeah, so we're kind of getting meta-podcasting here, so now you're just listening to us talk about podcasting. Yeah. But um, it is difficult because we've said we'll do a podcast to analyse it and you can't just analyse in a fully positive or fully negative way, I think. True. And we try and tread the balance of that and it is difficult sometimes. Mm. So it goes. Constantly praising something's the same as constantly criticising it. It just becomes a one-tone debate, doesn't it? Mm. Which is Mm. no debate at all. <laughs> and with that, uh, you, we, you will probably have things to say to us in the discussion group. Mm. We welcome it, but please don't swear at me. <laughs> <laughs> no one has yet, and I'm hoping no one will. Uh, with that, 
the same invitation is extended to you guys. Thanks for staying with us. Join us in our social media groups. Email us, rate, review, etc. Yeah, definitely do that rating thing. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>